TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. the listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Kyle, what have you been listening to lately? So I just took a plane trip to London uh, for the Star Wars convention there. And on the way, I listened to the newest Star Wars book called Aftermath Life Debt by Chuck Windig. And, uh, I'll be honest with you, I fell asleep while I was listening to it, so I don't remember quite as much of it, so I've got to reverse and uh, back it up a little bit. Awesome. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM for your free audiobook. What's going on? Man, it's been a really busy week. Uh, you know, I just I mentioned I was at Star Wars Celebration Europe. Uh, yes. With my wife Carrie for five days. How was it? It was incredible. You know, Did it meet, exceed, or not meet your expectations. So the con- the convention exceeded my expectations. It was, uh, you know, me, Carrie, and about a hundred thousand other Star Wars fans from around the world hanging out. Uh, Carrie and I had VIP passes to the yes. to the convention, and they were worth their weight in gold. We didn't wait in line for anything. We got like into everything early, uh, so everything that we wanted to do, we were able to do, and we did it, you know, in style. Um, and so there are people dressed up in costumes, and we got to appear, and we got to sort of, you know, be at all of these. Uh, panel discussions where all of these like new actors appeared and they show new trailers for the new movies that are coming out. And so, you know, I just feel like uh, it was a real special time and it was cool just being in London as well. What was the most surprising thing about the conference? Oh man. You know, uh, it compared, a, I was comparing it a lot to the previous star Wars celebration, which was in Anaheim last year. And that's and what it's called the star Wars celebration, star Wars celebration. Like that. Yeah. And so by by comparison, I was thinking about sort of my experience in Anaheim and the convention centers themselves were like drastically different. So, you know, the one in Anaheim was pretty small. There wasn't uh, anything to eat or drink inside the convention. So you had to sort of leave it every single time you wanted to, to partake in some food. But this one in London was like full tilt everything, sit down restaurants, counter service restaurants, whatever you wanted to do sort of inside, you didn't have to leave at all. And being a part of the VIP, we had like this special like reception area just for VIPs. So they had like cookies and water and coffee and tea like all day long for us. And you could just hang out. Um, you know, it was special in, in a lot of ways and it was Carrie's first time in Europe. So there was a good amount of like sightseeing that we did around yeah. London as well. We did like a Harry Potter walking tour as well, sort of, you know, cross fandom experiences on the trip. Oh, very cool. Yeah. What were the other VIPs like at the celebration? 
Uh, they're a lot. They're like just like me and Gary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was just like it was people from around the world. I mean, a lot, lots of people from the U.S., a lot of people from uh, the U.K. as well. Um, you know, there was they were a good mix. Like there was like a there was like a kid there who had gotten VIP passes, and his mom had come with him so he could attend the the celebration. Awesome. And, then, and then there were you know there were older people who were you know probably. You know, probably in their teens when the very first Star Wars movie came out. So, you know, it was a good diverse group of individuals. There were 200 VIPs um, at, the, at the conference. Considering it was like 100,000 attendees, that's a very – like that's really actually VIP. Yeah, it is. Actually, you know, we were, we tried to get VIP tickets for the next celebration, which is in Orlando next April. Um, but Carrie and I were unable to. It was just Is the, it a lottery system. No, it's like a first come first serve. And so when they, they went on sale back in May. And so everybody sits on their computers and just waits for the time when they go on sale and, you know, tries to get in as soon as they possibly can. But we're, so we're not going to be VIPs in Orlando. I'm not sure what we're going to do. Yeah. How can you go back? It's like, you know, you ride first class once and yeah, <laughs> coach feels just like a, a downgrade every single experience. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I think, I think it'll be okay. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you guys had a good time. And how was London? You know, London was great. Uh, we we did like, this big walking tour. Carrie wanted to see the sights, and so I I sort of walked her around to everything that I remembered from the last time that I was there. And so, you know, on one of the mornings we did. I came. I I should map it out and see how far it was. But Carrie hit thirty five thousand steps that day um, I on love her like on that. her Fitbit. You feel so accomplished. Yeah, and so uh, I was. She's on this like competitive Fitbit site with people at her work. And I tried to get her to talk trash to people like on the, on her message board uh, about how much walking she was getting in, but she wouldn't do it. That doesn't feel on brand for Carrie. It feels on brand for you, <laughs> yeah. but I can't imagine yeah. talking I, trash. I was, like, I was like, here's what, here's what you, you walked in London. <laughs> I was like, here's what, here's what you should type. And she's like, I'm not typing that. <laughs> I declined that suggestion. Yeah, but you know, we 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 did we just played tourists for a bit. We we saw London Bridge and we saw the Tower of London and the, the House of Parliament and Big Ben and Buckingham Palace. You know, we sort of just hit the hit, hit all the sites. That, that's a, that's a lot of walking to do to sort of hit all of those. And then the next day we went on that Harry Potter walking tour, which was a little more intimate. And uh, the guide sort of gave us you know really cool insights into some areas that are, are a little bit off the beaten path. And so you, we probably wouldn't have found them on our own without having uh, the tour guide. Fantastic. I'm so glad you guys were able to do that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really happy that we got to go away for a little bit and uh, Carrie especially just got to take a, you know, a little bit of a break after kind of a stressful spring and summer of moving and changing jobs and everything. And we, and we saw bike share in London. Yes. So I, you know, we saw lots of bike share stations, Saw people using it. I would say that the only thing that I think London sort of has missed on the bike share sort of scene is that they made their bikes like this really drab charcoal gray and they're not like super noticeable. And it just, it feels like a missed opportunity to sort of really brand central London with bikes in, in a real big way. It, it's sort of like it fits into the gray, gloomy landscape that London can, can offer sometimes. Yeah. And it just feels like had they been bright yellow or bright green, <laughs> like that you would have sort of noticed a lot more of them. Well, they actually used to be a different color because they changed like title sponsor. Oh. I think last year, like 18 months ago. Okay. And I was at a conference and it was really kind of amazing to hear about, you know, there's thousands of bike share bikes and the like 
undertaking it was to like totally <laughs> rebrand the system and then to hear it grab is like really de- i feel really depressed about that <laughs> yeah it, i mean it was just like if i i knew what i was looking for and so i noticed them but if but i think if you were like totally clueless about what bike share was just in general they just sort of blend into the landscape naturally. I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to that, but I just felt like, you know, that there's a lot of cities like Washington DC for one, right. Who has bright red bikes with, oh, like, yeah, with like yellow letters. And when you go there, you see people riding those bikes and like, you're, you're sort of very conscious that people are riding bike share there. And I knew when I saw people riding bikes, whether they were riding a bike share bike or not, but I'm not sure that like, you know, just the average Joe would have really sort of made that connection. Very interesting perspective. Yeah. You should write them a letter. I'm sure they'd be really happy to hear that. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> so we have a really interesting a new format for this podcast. Yeah, it's something you and I have been talking about doing for a little while. You know, we 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 figured out, you know, to some degree, you know, how to get people to come on and talk about people and talk about their life experiences. But, you know, there's also room, you know, we've discussed on the podcast for being a little more having more sort of timely discussions about things that are happening in the world and sort of reacting to those things uh, from the perspective of bike advocates and professionals working in bicycling. Yeah. So you and I had kind of started to talk about kind of the recent um, protest and Black Lives Matter movement that has become kind of a, a big part of our, our news stories lately. I mean, it's important in all, in all of our cities, but has recently been getting a lot more more press and been in the forefront, I think, of a, of a lot of individuals' minds that may not have been aware of that. And so, you know, I think as as we look at ourselves as advocates, kind of how can we look at ourselves as larger advocates for our cities and for the people that live in our cities? And I think we brought on some really great folks to kind of help help us with that conversation. Yeah, we had uh, Naomi Dorner, who had joined us on the podcast previously uh, from New Orleans, and uh, a new guest, Roshan Austin, from the Works Community Development Corporation in South Memphis, a, a real good friend of ours and someone that works closely uh, sort of in the Memphis scene uh, to help promote bicycling. And so, you know, I think the real advantage of this kind of format is that you can ask some some serious questions and have a sort of a variety of perspectives and answers about, you know, sort of how uh, things that are happening in our world are sort of impacting, you know, bicycling movements in cities across the country. And I felt, you know, you know a lot of ways – Naomi and Roshan really sort of knocked it out of the park and dropped a lot of wisdom and and, and laid down a, a real great solid framework, you know, for for other questions and other other discussions to happen in the future. Absolutely, yeah. I look forward to continuing this format and really continuing the conversation we had with Naomi and Roshan because I really think we just taught, touched the surface about kind of how um, we can be better advocates and and I think better humans. Agreed. So should we do this thing? Let's roll. Let's hit it. I recently was on the telephone with a group of bike advocates. And during the course of the conversation, uh, a well-known and and longtime bike advocate and planner sort of asserted an opinion that we don't need an equity movement within bicycling. You know, that 
bikes are doing good things in communities all across the country and that we shouldn't be criticizing that work that's being accomplished. It's uh, it, to do so, you know, is disrespectful of the, the progressive liberal people working in our cities and it's disrespectful of the bicycle planning profession in general. Uh, and, you know, it, it really sort of struck a, a big nerve with me. We, got, we sort of got into it a little bit on the telephone about it. But I just wondered, is, is this kind of conversation an indication that that the critiques are working, you know, that that common held beliefs are being challenged or, or are we alienating sort of a group of allies trying to make bikes mean more in our cities? I think to some extent it's alienating. And I was looking at the questions and I thought about that. And I said often, even within our movements, our liberal movements, we ignore our own privilege. Um, and so sometimes we don't see, see the forest for the trees. Uh, and I think that... Um, opinion or that conversation or dialogue may have grown out of privilege. Uh, so I, I can even sit back personally, having been a part of movements, but being at a different point in my life uh, in a different space than I was growing up or some time ago, or from people that I know or people in my community. And I can blind myself to their experience because my experience is very different. Um, and if we don't have the continue to have the equity conversation around any movement, uh, and it's and especially around bicycling, uh, that means we're going to leave out a lot of diverse voices, um, and they're not going to be at the table, and that's significant. Yeah, and I'll just add that um, you know I I would like to you know one thank you, <laughs> um, Kyle, for you know kind of having that moment where you, you were upset because, um, you know, I, I think that it will take, um, you know, more people and it's not even the challenge. It's, it's not that we're challenging. It's, it's that we're saying, you know, there are other ways to be looking and thinking of this. And, you know, if we're having this like group think around the right way, um, then we're, Definitely, um, as Rashawn was saying, like excluding a number of other perspectives and not even perspectives, but lived experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when you think about, you know, for, for someone to say, um, and I've been thinking a lot about the parallels between, and I never thought of this before until recently. Um, but you know, the whole like safe streets for all or complete streets for all and these statements of for all. And yes, right. Like when you, when you say it like that, when you think of it like that, true, um, you know, communities that have options to travel in different ways freely, um, you know, like, yes, that is, that is uh, a good thing and it can be a better thing. But when people are uh, physically <laughs> unsafe to do so beyond from, you know, beyond a vehicular sort of like safety perspective, like when, black and brown bodies are seen as threats moving through um, space, like breathing, being. Um, that is a lived experience. And it, it's something that um, you, you can't glaze over with an for all statement. And so it's been really interesting because I've been thinking about, you know, the way that we have been talking and thinking and working. Um, is it, and this is a question, uh, but it's a provocative one. Is it, is 
are we in the bike movement perpetuating an all lives matter type of thinking? Well, I think when you hear the term for all, I think you start, I start thinking about like equality versus equity. And I think all may in the bike movement or other movements represent equality, which I think as we all know, as advocates who care about social justice does not mean equity and does not mean that we, A, have, you know, the lived experiences of other individuals who have different lived experiences and keeping all of that in mind. Yeah, I, I, I like the conversation around lived experiences because when I saw that um, conversation, that dialogue, the question around that, I thought about movements that preceded this. I thought about the feminist movement. And as a black woman, um, I don't think that the women that were involved in the liberal feminist movements, because I don't just think of the one that happened in the 50s around the feminine mystique or the ones that happened in the late 1800s, in the late 19th century. Um, I just think of all of those types of movements. I don't think that the leaders of those movements were intentionally exclusive, but their experience as women, for instance, as white women in America was quite different, particularly in the 19th century, from an African-American woman who perhaps was a former slave and I think about uh, Harriet Tubman's speech at Saratoga. You know, she's like, ain't I a woman? Because her experience, her lived experience was much different than the women she was fighting alongside uh, in Saratoga. And then you come up to the 50s. So you had African-American women who were battling civil rights along with the men, uh, African-American men in this country. At the same time, they were fighting along other feminists. And so it's a, it's really not a dichotomy, but they had to, they had two battles because their experience as women was different from a white woman. And I think sometimes we, um, although we're not intentionally exclusive, we're guilty oftentimes of being exclusive. And I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I like it's 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 very interesting. Yeah, when you look at various social movements, like um, to have uh, there's just I guess there's just intersections is the point, right? There's inflections, there's intersections, there's lived experiences, and so um, you know when you're looking at, I mean, especially in planning. So for a planner, and I am a planner, and Kyle, you're a planner. You know, like I mean, anyone that is is doing this work around transforming public spaces, whether from a community development perspective or whether planning or technical perspective to, you know, not recognize that like fundamentally, you know, like the transformation of public space is going to have different effects on different groups of people. Um, so I, I would say to, and I do say to folks that, um, challenge sort of this like identity politic. Right. Um, and I do hear that. Um, I'm, I'm what I would consider a liberal progressive. Um, but I do hear from a lot of my liberal progressive planning colleague friends, um, you know, Oh, well, identity politics are holding us back and this is the problem. And, you know, we, we really need to consider ourselves as one. And it's like, but that's, that's a nice way of thinking of it, but that is absolutely a privileged way of, of seeing and being and, and just 
if you can recognize that, I think that's the starting point to much deeper um, conversation and, and to much deeper uh, work. Um, and um, and in this moment in which we're in, um, and and you know, I, I would I would contend that we have been in this moment, um, and his it has it has hit this um, mass sort of like media um, recognition because you know we're seeing these horrific, uh, you know, moments captured live. And I would say that it's really peeling back um, the curtain. It's really giving people who didn't know or hadn't seen or hadn't been confronted with that in their life um, for the first time. And so I think that that's where and why we're in the moment that we're in. But I would say that a lot of, uh, you know, folks of color, like, in communities of color, low-income communities, like this has been at the forefront of, you know, people's minds and um, realities for a very long time. That's interesting about um, the whole all lives matter type of thing and the considering ourselves as one big piece. And I, I just, it made me think that in order to consider ourselves as one, all parts must be individually whole. And I, I think that's the issue. Yeah. Some of the people are not whole for many different reasons. So they have lack of access uh, to resources or the conditions in which they live are not equitable. It's hard to consider themselves as one because they're not whole individually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, you guys said so many great things, and I, I want to ask a couple different questions on a couple different of those things. So let me let me go in one direction, and then we can have a little discussion, and then I'll sort of swing us back around in a different direction. Uh, I've recently have, a, have gotten and have been reading a, a new book called Bike Lanes Are White Lanes. It's by Melody Hoffman. Uh, I'm, I'm not very far into it. I'm maybe 40 or 50 pages into it, so I can't sort of speak to its entirety at this point. But she opens the book by talking about uh, that she is critical of how mainstream bike advocacy and planning have really sort of developed over the last decade or so. But at the end of the day, she's still a bicyclist, and she approaches issues of equity in our communities from a pro-bicycling point of view. Uh, so my question would be in this, uh, Naomi, you sort of talked on this just a little bit, but I, I'm wondering, you know, how should bike ad advocates reconcile, you know, their interest in promoting bikes, right? I, I, sometimes advocates can fall back to this mantra of, listen, I'm a bike advocacy organization, right? I'm not here to sort of seek social justice for people. I'm not here to sort of, you know, improve housing conditions. I'm not here to sort of fight the land use fight. I'm, I'm here to promote bicycling, bicycling safety. But how can we, how can they reconcile that interest uh, while also serving sort of this greater good and, and, and serving in this in this very necessary point of view is that you know we have we have communities all across the country that are are being served injustices on on a daily basis. You know how do bike advocates sort of transform the work they're doing to be more focused on you know communities in a whole? So I guess it's interesting. I, I think that it's not like it's not for me to say how you, Kyle, should do things. But I will say that the way I approach it and the way that I think, um, you know, advocates for mobility and equity that are working within the walk bike space approach 
work um, is really wanting to understand first and foremost, like where it is that the work um, that they're doing to really, I mean, really like fundamentally to me, it's, it's about how do we increase access um, to, you know, opportunity, um, whether that's walking and biking or, you know, that first and last mile to transit um, as well as, so it's not that we're eschewing, you know, folks that just want and are choice riders, um, you know, but, but how do we really like work at the base, right? Because I think, you know, when you're looking at the data nationally, when you're looking at, you know, who's disproportionately affected by crashes, I mean, by and large, we know that more low income and people of color are walking and biking and they're not, you know, a part of these conversations. And so if I'm thinking about how do I really connect to those people, to the base, to the, to the folks that, you know, are doing this every day. And I know I'm going to already be connected to the people that want to do this. Um, what is it, what is it that I can, like, how do I leverage the resources? How do I leverage what it is, um, about my messaging to, you know, really connect to their daily life. And so I, I just see it as, um, being really uh, responsive, um, listening and getting to know like those community members that are not currently represented, I think by and large in a lot of the, the advocacy and work that we're doing and, um, you know, developing the kinds of campaigns that are aligned with the work, with the resources, with the um, economic opportunity and access um, uh needs that that are that exist and that people are talking about like they they are actively every day thinking about this so um that's that's what how i approach this and i you know i again like my goal isn't to convert people it's really just to you know look at the facts plainly um and and really kind of assess like are we being as effective as we can be um and if we're not if we're really looking to reach that, you know, if we're looking to reach beyond, you know, the, the choice riders of people that are already engaged, then that is to me a very like natural way of doing it. So that's, that's my response. I don't know if I answered your question, but. It's, so for me at the most basic level of community engagement, the first step needs to be engagement, asking people why and how is this significant in your life. Uh, and sometimes that means prompting, you know, why is bicycling significant for a community, a low income community in the urban core that has, um, a population of people with less than 50% of the people own cars or automobiles in a Southern city that depends heavily on the automobile, uh, is significant because it's a way of getting to those places that you can't access in your local community that are within a mile or two of your community. Um, and so sometimes you have to tell a story like, and I, I the, like the way we did it in Memphis is a mile away from here is two miles away from here. Uh, so you can address health disparities. We have this, these are our numbers around health disparities. And so in terms of the exercise that you can get while bicycling, uh, it's a form of getting you, a form, a mode of transportation to get to a place that's close by. Um, it's a way of connecting with your neighbors. 
you know, so we have to kind of tell stories, but at the same time, determine why and how it is currently significant or how and why it can be significant if they're not currently doing it. And and for me, that's kind of elementary. It's the bottom up approach of doing, getting people involved in community development or any type of community activism or engagement. And I don't think we've done that. I think very, it's easy to go top down. Um, we're already involved in this. We're, we're already a part of the movement. And so we assume that everybody should just get with the program, even though they may not understand why this is significant for them. And I also think, Rashawn, kind of on, on that point and the stories you've shared about, you know, South Memphis in particular is there there are people of color that live and, and work in South Memphis that are, are riding bikes and, and using bikes for soul transportation or how to connect with their transit system, but they're not necessarily identifying as bike riders and they're not necessarily being counted, you know, in the ways that our city planners or other organizations are, are counting cyclists. And I think it's it's interesting to kind of that bottom of approach is like really kind of sharing with people um you know, how they identify and it may not be how, you know, bike advocates want people to identify about how they're, you know, labeling themselves as well. Yeah. I just heard a story yesterday from a vendor who was in my office about her son was passing by a man she thought was an adult, he thought was an adult man on the side of the road with a bicycle, uh, Uh, maybe one of the tires or something was wrong with the bicycle. So the person was stopped trying to fix the bicycle. Um, And so 40 minutes later, when he was on his way back somewhere else in his automobile, that same person was there. He pulled over to see if he could assist the person. Person ended up being a teen who was on his way to work, um, who had initially walked to work and it took him a, a little over an hour to walk to work. I think it was a five mile walk. And, but he was trying to get to work on the bicycle. And so kind of told the story. He needed this job in order to pay some kind of fees at his school. Uh, You know, it was a long story about going to college in the future, but he didn't have the tools and um, the wherewithal really to fix the bicycle. So the guy picked him up, put him in a truck, took him to work uh, with a bicycle. He said his manager could fix the bike. But we don't those people that are riding bikes back and forth to work. And I'm starting to snap pictures of people on the side of the road in urban core neighborhoods to show that those people, I agree, have not been counted. They are using those bicycles and they've been using those bicycles to get to work, to get to stores, to get to across town, to their family's home, to connect in different ways. But they don't get counted. Uh I agree. They don't offer it. And I don't know why. I was just thinking, Naomi, what you said something about, you know, that this isn't necessarily something that bicycle planners and advocates need to do sort of as, as sort of a, you know, a novelty of sort of addressing equity as a part of their planning and practices that, you know, if I think what you said is accurate, right? If you want to be effective as a, a planner working in communities, diverse set of communities across the country, you have to sort of do this kind of work. It, it's sort of a necessity that, that comes with it. And and if you and if you aren't, you know, I think you know that kind of that level of work and effort that you're doing is going to be pretty short lived. I was just thinking back to sort of my time in Memphis, 
working as the bike manager for the city. And I think that's absolutely true. Like somebody asked me one time, like, you know, what's it like being the bike manager? I said, well, I don't, I don't really know. I work on everything else except for bicycle stuff, right? I I work on like the potholes that are on the street. I work on the broken uh, streetlights that are out there. I'm working with uh, families connecting to community centers during the summer. I'm doing all these other things because as, as a part of my work with the city was going into communities, trying to build community support around projects and around programs for bicycling. But all of these other things would come up during the course of those kinds of discussions, right? And the most effective way for me to continue to do work for bicycling in those communities was to listen and to address all of these other things that were concerns to to people in the community. So, you know, our in Memphis, our 311 sort of reporting system where you can report things to the city, uh, they would call me all the time. They'd say, Kyle, why do you keep reporting things? Because you have to put your name in. They, they would see Kyle Wagon Shoots come across the 311 system. And I'd be like, well, listen, you know, this. The, I was at this public meeting. I got all these uh, concerns. If, if I'm going to go back to the next public meeting and talk about this trail that we're trying to build, uh, I need to be able to say with some reassurance that we've addressed all these other these other minor things that people um, had talked about. And with those major things, I'm going to connect those people to the people that can actually, you know, help them with some of these ma- more major problems that I, that's outside my skill set. So I think that's accurate. I mean, you don't even, you don't even have to approach this from the standpoint of, you know, I'm here and I want to address inequities in communities, just if you want to be an effective planner and an effective bike advocate, I think it's just part of the territory. Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I agree. I agree with all of that. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that if we, well, I think that if we could see the tremendous, again, like a, just the tremendous opportunity that there is in being really like community liaisons, right? Um, to, uh, not, not that we're going to solve every problem, but if we are able to build relationships in communities that have had long, long, long histories of distrust with government, okay? And leverage the relationships that we have with government, because I will say one thing that bike advocates have done, um, over time, right? It's taken a while and some places might have more, um, more of a seat at the table and others are working there. But I I guess my point is that like communities, especially communities have been historically disinvested in, um, there is a very long and, and rightfully so like history of distrust there, but for advocates, right. Um, to be resources and to help liaise and be, um, agents, of like community building and trust is such an amazing opportunity that we have. And so I think again, like just to, you know, reiterate what we what we're talking about is that, you know, to, to really, um, to be able to do that and just be more effective at our own work and to have, um, relationships in the community that we can call upon and to really pivot and, you know, go back to, the, um, you know, government, uh, you know, agencies that we're working with, um, and, and provide the information that they're really like struggling because they don't have capacity, they don't have capacity, they don't have resources, um, or they just, you know, are kind of strained in, in, in many ways. You've worked in government, so you know what I mean? Like, that's really huge to have that sort of intermediary. Um, and I think that if we could see ourselves as a bridge, 
as opposed to, um, you know, on one side or the other of, of this, um, of this work, uh, we, we would just, I think we would be able to, to get so much done. And, um, I personally don't, I mean, I don't, I don't see it as an option because I think again, in order to, to do any kind of like effective, um, planning, you know, building of like relationships and communities, it's just, it's just part of, part of the job. Um, and, um, so I, I don't know, like some people really get upset and just going back to what you were saying. I mean, I, I have, uh, over the years, um, in, in the bike advocacy community encountered, um, that sort of thinking like, well, this isn't what we do, but it is, um, or at least, at least to me it is. And so, uh, I think we are seeing more and more people getting that understanding that and, and really effectively doing that. Um, it's going to take a while to really gain the trust. I mean, especially since I will say that, you know, um, and, and this is going to the bike lanes or white lanes. I mean, Bike advocacy, by and large, you know, I mean, after the State of the Movement report that the Alliance put out, I mean, we know, we have numbers that that do, um, and it, this isn't just, you know, what we think. We know that bike advocacy is, by and large, um, white, you know, and I think that that recognition and knowing that we have um, really aligned ourselves with government partners, because when we looked at the survey of who is who are advocates working with, like the partners that they listed were everyone, but like community development groups, community, you know, community groups, they're working with government. They're working with regional planning, um, uh, you know, municipal planning organizations. And so I think, again, if we could become bridges as opposed to, you know, seeing ourselves as one side or the other, um, you know, like we're going to, we're going to build sustainability and longevity for the work that's, you know, really important and that's ahead of us, um, especially as cities continue um, to change in terms of demographics. So, Rashawn, what's your perspective as someone, you know, who's working in a community development organization as well as an anchor, an anchor church in South Memphis, which, you know, is traditionally kind of an underserved community about, you know, how does your community feel around, about, you know, biking and walking advocacy? You know, what's the the temperature there? So, so the, the, the people the who people actually, actually live in the community, um, once we've asked them the questions, they understand why, well, they use bi- bicycles when they own them. So very often they just don't own them. Um, and don't, don't understand how they can get an affordable bike. There's a different perspective on the, the membership of the church, from the membership of the church, than there are from the low-income people that live in our neighborhood. So our church is transient, middle-class, upper-middle-class people who had some tie to the community um, at one point, whether it's uh, they grew up there, they have family still there. They It's very different views. So we have middle-class African-Americans in this church who are anti-bike. They're anti-bicycle lanes, but these are the same people. And why, why is that? Because they're like, so that's when I can use the one or they're like everyone else. They, they've, uh, 
they're upwardly mobile. They live in suburban communities, miles from the church. They drive in 20 miles or more uh, to services or to do their volunteer work. They do ride bicycles and own nice bicycles, but they ride it on the green lane. And they don't understand why we don't have the green line, not the green lane, but the green line. Uh, we don't have it currently in our neighborhood. And for some reason, they've forgotten that the people in this neighborhood also want to have those same type of benefits. Uh, they can't go out to the green line along Walnut Grove because they don't have access to transportation. They don't own bicycles. Uh, and, and, and like I said earlier, it's we're not intentionally being exclusive, but we're ignoring our own privilege. And that's even among African-Americans who are middle class. And so I don't think it's a, a white versus a black. Maybe it's a middle class or upper middle class versus people who don't have access, people that are um, marginalized for a lot of different reasons. And so we have if we have a meeting at the church, you have a group of people on one side. It's kind of a West Side story that are saying, why do we have to have the bike lanes that are blocking our parking? Because now we're affluent enough to own cars. And these are the same people that a generation ago or, or two generations ago with their parents didn't own cars. One person in the neighborhood may have had a car. People walked. They did bicycle. And once they became affluent, it's like they wanted to leave that behind. And a lot of it, and we've discussed it before, it's a stigma uh, that over some time uh, – was attached to bicycling, it meant that you were still poor. We wanted to move beyond that. Um, we wanted to have the automobiles. And so everybody not only got one, they got two or three in a, in a household of two people uh, because it was a symbol of affluence. And so sometimes it's trying to escape that past, which may have been uh, poor. All right. I want to circle back around to sort of another line of thought that uh, that you ladies sort of started us down in, in an earlier answer to a question. But this is one – this is like another experience that I had. So I just want to share it with you and um, ask you, if, you know, if there's some opportunities here. But, you know, the last three weeks or so, right, we've seen horrific violence in Baton Rouge and – Falcon Heights, Minnesota, Dallas, and, you know, just this earlier this week in, you know, North Miami, we just, you know, the stories are continuing to come. There's lots of written critiques and, you know, there's a lot being said, a lot of public scrutiny, protests are rising up, you know, all over the country, including in, in Memphis. Uh, and all, while that's all happening, right, I'm getting, uh, I'm having a conversation with some white bicycle advocates that are concerned that the police in their city are ignoring their request for help. So they, you know, they cited to me a case where a, a bicyclist was hit by a car, a 911 was called, and it took, you know, like three hours for the police to arrive. And they sort of suggested to me that it took so long because the, the, the police knew that it was a bicyclist involved, uh, or that they're being targeted for riding bikes simply because they're riding bicycles. And they came to me and wanted to know, you know, what, what is advocacy doing across the country to, to work with police uh, to get their behavior in check as it relates to bicyclists? You know, and that, and that they sort of asserted in some ways, too, that, that bike advocacy across the country should be more assertive in protecting those that ride bikes from law enforcement. And part of me is reading, you know, these news stories from across the country feeling sort of the weight of injustice being done in communities all over and 
reading this what what seemed at the time sort of a very ironic email right from from white bike advocates who were sort of feeling the kind of burden that you know communities of color all across our country have felt for more than a century and i just wonder you know is there an opportunity here for bike advocates to you know sort of you know to understand you know that that level of irony is there an opportunity for you know, bike advocates to join with these sort of broader social justice movements, particularly as it relates to, you know, the, the struggle for accountability and justice with our law enforcement agencies? I, I I think so, because, I mean, if I'm assuming that bike advocacy uh, is, its aim is a better quality of life. So, you know, in terms of transportation. And so I, I see it's funny. I don't. I don't want to trivialize those concerns because there's so many, many things going on in marginalized communities and have been going on for centuries. And yeah, I mean that that was exactly <laughs> like my, my I'm, I'm I'm like having this conversation. I'm reading these emails and I'm just like, guys, you know, give give me a break here. You know. Did you say that in the email? No, no. But but they have to, they have to. consider that there have been policies. Uh, over the last several decades that particularly over the last eight years or so that have eroded civil rights gains that we made uh, in the 50s and 60s in this country. I mean, there are intentional policies at a federal, at a state and even at a local level um, that have been that have been put in place to erode any gains. I mean, we're we're now, again, talking about voting rights acts or, you know, I'm like, are we back in the 50s and who's the president? Because we're now talking about the amendments that were passed uh, on the Constitution again um, and and how our local and state and federal politicians are trying to erode those gains. We're talking about the disinvestment is not new, but those policies certainly don't help disinvestment. And at the same time, we have volatile economic conditions in this country. and then now we're able to film it. So we have advances in technology. And for me, that's the formula for a revolution or and or an explosion. And so I, I don't know what how I would have responded to that. Uh, like I said, I don't want to trivialize anyone's concerns, whatever their movement. But we have to figure out in this country. And it's like, uh I would say it's like first 50 days. Are we going to keep doing this over and over again? Or is this Groundhog Day? We have to join forces. And so that means we have to engage diverse voices in all of our conversations. And so we can't just get caught up in our one little movement and think that's the end all, be all. How do we take the concerns of bicycle advocates? How do they fit within some other movement that's going on. Because I think that's part of the issue, uh, like with the movements, the Black Lives Matter, or movements among African-American communities or people of color throughout the country. They're like, oh, I don't want to talk about green space or I don't want to talk about parks or bicycles because I'm hungry, uh, because we're being killed by police. But I think there's a way to integrate some of those movements together. That's the only way that all of our movements can be successful and inclusive. Yeah, I um, I know exactly what you're talking about, Kyle, and I, I think uh, it is it is 
I don't, it's, yeah, it's, it's ironic because, but you know, like at the end of the day, I mean, I think the, you know, motivation is that, you know, people, people want to feel safe. Right. And so, um, to ride a bike and not feel safe is a, is a really unsettling thing for someone who can move through life generally, right? Like feeling safe. Um, so again, not to trivialize, but I think one of the ways in which I um, try to bring context uh, to folks that might be, you know, thinking in that way um, or, you know, asking those kinds of questions is, is to kind of, you know, really dig a little deeper and say, you know, I, you know, have you considered that, you know, like, what is the context in your community? Like, what are the pressing matters that, you know, um, police and communities are facing? Um, and it's not to say that, like, we shouldn't be thinking about how to make, um, you know, folks safer um, on, on the street as they travel with a bicycle. But it's like, I think that what is really in our movement and like, like to, to, to really bring it right into a broader context is like, again, um, and, and, and this gets to what Rashad was saying, like, what, what is, what does street safety mean? Right? Like it's going to mean one thing to someone who's riding a bicyclist who doesn't feel safe when they're riding, but like, what does street safety mean um, in a broader context in a community that is dealing with insecurity, right? I read this amazing article. I don't know if you all saw it, but um, Bretton Mock, uh, who writes for The Atlantic, he recently wrote, I think it was yesterday, um, he basically read a study where these um, uh, environmental sort of justice uh, researchers wrote how um, environmental justice um, and environmental act advocates um, really need to think about environmental insecurity that communities of color face um, beyond just like the traditional framework of environment because environment um, in a in a you know neighborhood that's you know kind of experiencing um, you know significant rates of, of crime and violence and poverty and, and you know these cycles um, have a different notion of like what their environment is than like an environmental, activists or advocates. So I think that in that same, I was really thinking about the parallel with our movement, right? We think about street safety and streets for all, but like, what does that actually mean? And we need to, we just need to dig deeper. So I guess that's how I try to respond when I do hear that. And, um, and again, not to trivialize, but I think just getting people to, to see beyond like that immediate, like their immediate problem and, and say like, there are, these problems are tied to other problems and um, there are varying degrees of them. And like how, like for us to, for anyone to, to think about our problem, we need to first get to all of these other pressing issues. Um, so yeah, that's my thought on that. Uh, sometimes I think we forget in this country, we're really forgetful. I was just thinking about, King and I, if for some reason, maybe in here somewhere, the the urgency of now. And I think I look back on him. What was one of the greatest things about him was that he was a middle class, educated minister who was able to align with uneducated tenant farmers, domestics, and at the same time, he aligned with 
the educated liberal. And so he was able to bring people together. Uh, And so, of course, an educated liberal from the North didn't have the same issue around the Montgomery buses that the domestic in Montgomery had. But he was able to bring other people to that movement around Montgomery. And it brought out a lot of other issues that people were having across the country. Um, But you had all these different people at the table. And I'm like, so how do we forget how he did that? And he emerged as a leader because he wasn't initially the leader, but he was able to bring the wealthy, the educated, the uneducated, the illiterate, the non-Christian to the same table. And so we have their, their lessons are there. We just need to go and borrow lessons from those movements where we brought a lot of things together. He talked about economics and class. He talked about buses and, and transportation in Montgomery. He talked about sanitation in Memphis or working conditions in Memphis. He talked about housing in Chicago. So you can do more than one thing. We can walk and chew gum. Yeah, Rashawn, I think that's great. I mean, I'm new to you know the bike advocacy movement, but I just keep seeing this like huge opportunity I think to your point is like we've learned lessons about how to be advocates around social justice and how all of the things around local, you know, food policy and access to healthy foods and safe streets and safe bike lanes and transit and the whole list of things that create communities that are livable for neighborhoods, I think all fall under this like larger bucket that I think a lot of people are in silos focusing on their particular point of interest around advocacy. And, you know, we're not necessarily talking to each other mm-hmm. at all and with I, our heads I, down, kind of moving forward. And I, I guess I, I also like to say that, you know, a lot of folks ask me, oh, like, what are ways that advocates can, you know, really um, work to, um, you know, be allies, better allies to to black and brown communities and in, you know, this justice work. And I'm like, well, I think one way is to, to not see yourself as separate from the struggle. Like, you know, we're all in this and I, you know, it like the impacts and the like negative and like, like really like the impacts of, you know, structural racism and the policies that um, have been, you know, institutionalized certainly are, you know, um, and have been affecting low income and communities of color. But I, I think that like, like white folks or, you know, non-black and brown people are affected by this drastically so. And so, you know, it's not the sort of struggle of one sort of, you know, uh, class or one, you know, people's, uh, it's, it's the liberation of like, it's our liberation. So I, I don't know. I, I guess it's like there is an allyship, but there is also just like seeing yourself as not apart from, but, you know, also um, seeking, you know, liberation for all of us. So for whatever reason you come to the table around bicycling or how you get people to the table. And I just thought of the African proverb, many, many hands make the low light. So if I'm a bicycle advocate that comes to the table because I'm an environmentalist at the same time, 
and I'm dealing with car emissions or automobile emissions. And so I want people to ride bikes because I don't want the environment destroyed. Or if I'm a bicycle advocate and I come to the table because my community does not own cars, or maybe we have to create that person to make them into a bicycle advocate or make them understand that they already are one. Or if I'm a bicycle advocate because I just think we all should ride bikes for whatever reason, I'm an advocate around bicycles. We have to understand we're, we're all advocates around bicycling, whatever the ultimate reason we're an advocate. You know, so like someone said about just walking with our head down about just our part of the movement, we can all do it at the same time. I can be an environmentalist. I can be one around just I need I simply need transportation. I can be one because I want everyone to uh, ride their bicycles to work for whatever reason. I can be one because I love, I just simply love bike lanes and I love green lines and I love green spaces. And so for whatever that reason, we can all have different end goals or reasons why we're at the table. We all have the same goal. We want want bicycling. So how do we, I mean, this is a very large question and someone recently asked me this and I was unable to answer it. So you guys are all crazy smart is how do we start positioning, you know, that question, like how do I as a bike advocate specifically around bike share and transportation end up at the table with housing authority or end up in the table with, you know, someone in their community that, that really wants a community garden in their backyard Kind of how are we as allies all together? Like what's the next step? Like how do we figure out how to connect with folks that aren't necessarily in our networks and aren't necessarily in our neighborhoods and don't cross our industries and backgrounds? Like where does that kind of like conversation start from? I guess we can figure out what we have. I mean, the people we have in common. So for uh, an advocate around bicycles, like someone mentioned earlier, it may have been you, Sarah, uh, community development corporations. So there's a community group already existing and we may have someone in common. So they they know the people in the neighborhood. Then they also know you at the same time. And so that's one way of getting into neighborhoods, at least. And I always say when I'm going to different groups, I go to them in a way that they understand. And I always use the example is if I'm going to the our local county board of commissioners and I'm asking them for money. I have to go to them talking about property tax revenue. How does it benefit them? Because their reality, the county raises money from property tax. And so if I'm asking them for money, how do I generate property tax? Uh, So what is the benefit or the gain for them? And, And so if I go to the bank and I'm asking for a loan, I need to prove that I have the ability to repay with interest. And so I go to them with something they understand. Uh, And that's how I form alliances with people that are not necessarily like me. We don't do the exact same thing, but where do some of those things that we do intersect and then showing them how it benefits them. And at the same time, I gain benefit. Yeah, I I would um, have a whole lot more to add. I think that I think that she uh, Rashawn really kind of hit on some of the things I would have said. I, I, you know, in advocacy and, um, 
a lot of like organizing. There's this exercise called power mapping, which I don't know. I don't know if I like the terminology, but I think the idea is that you, you, you know, kind of as you're either thinking through a problem or you're just identifying who in a community um, is sort of like networked, you're also able to identify where the gaps are. Um, and I think you just have to, um, as you're doing this exercise, uh, you know, be open to what you don't know. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the hardest things is that, you know, as advocates, I think we like to consider ourselves the expert of like, you know, the thing that we're doing and, 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 you know, we're not, we're, um, we're really good at, um, aligning resources and, um, you know, kind of organizing campaigns, but, you know, really it's, it's, you know, folks that are living in communities and neighborhoods that are, you know, really the experts. And so they're going to see things that we don't. And, um, so when you power map, right, when you kind of are looking at like, not just who's in your network, um, but the resources in the network, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be gaps and you just have to, you have to be open to that. And when you realize where your gaps are, you know, I think that that's, um, that's where you start. That's where you start. You start looking at like where your gaps are and, and how do you, how do you strengthen your gaps? Um, because that's ultimately going to be, um, what builds, you know, your relationships as you, um, as you, as you work. Um, so again, I didn't really add a whole lot to that, but, um, that's just the way I kind of think about this. I adore both of you, like in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> thank uh, you, Kyle. Yeah, I want to thank both of you for just joining us and coming on. And, uh, you know, I we we really want sort of this podcast, you know, to sort of not just be about the people and about telling jokes about Star Wars and Sarah making fun of me about Star Wars. <laughs> but, you know, we want it to sort of also serve sort of a, a bigger purpose. And uh, I think these kinds of discussions are, you know, are really how we sort of move this profession and how we move this movement forward in a real way. So thanks, thanks to, to both of you for, uh, you know, sort of spending an hour with us on a Friday afternoon. I know you've got some things to do. So, uh, you know, with that, I think we're, we're just going to wrap up and, uh, go enjoy your weekend. Thanks you all. Thank you. I think this is definitely like a, to be continued conversation. So we really appreciate, appreciate what, however you say that word, um, y'all joining us and, and sharing your knowledge, laying it down. <laughs> well, thank you for having us. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of The Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.